0: Romans chapter 9 is where we're at. And we're in Romans chapter 9 because a number of months ago, we began teaching through and thinking about the entirety of the book of Romans. We think that it is not only wise, but also safe and good and right for us to take books of the Bible and walk through them consecutively. It means that you don't always just hear a hobby horse from whoever happens to have a microphone. It means that we can't avoid things that are difficult or hard or might confront us. It means that we embrace the whole counsel of God, not just portions that we find the most warm and loving. And that is where this study has taken us now, to the middle of Romans chapter 9. Last week, Brian taught, and I'm grateful. He joked that it was a birthday present to myself to have him teach on Jacob I love, that Esau I have hated. And I did, in fact, enjoy that. So I'm grateful that he taught. The thing that i want to know before i begin reading in the 14th verse is that verse 13 where we left it off last week is with that exact phrase jacob i loved but esau i hated and any thinking person any sincere studier of the bible realizes that introduced into that phrase is a question attention uh hmm how did that work what did that mean because Previously, it said in a very bald faced kind of way, Paul said, here's the reality that God's redemptive purpose came through Jacob and not Esau simply because he said so. They were not born, they'd done nothing good or bad. For some reason, the younger was going to be the one who inherited the the, the family line, and the older would serve the younger. And the explanation for given why is nothing more than because of God's purpose of election. And that leaves us some questions, or it should. And where we pick up in verse 14 is a question from the Apostle Paul. Now, you may have left last week, or even now me describing what I just said. You may be saying to yourself, I don't know. I'm always uncomfortable with these things. It just seems sort of unfair. What are you saying? How can that be that God has this purpose, but we don't get to see it, and and, and it's not up to us? What does that even mean? Does that seem fair? And I hope to be a comfort to you today for two reasons. One, that question Paul anticipates and says, here's what you should be asking. It means you get it. It means you're normal. And two, I want you to note as we begin reading in verse 14 that Paul's going to say we. What shall we say? And I believe that he is including himself In the wonder and the majesty and the awe, he's looking into a part of God's plan and redemption that he himself probably does not fully understand, sees that there's tension there, and realizes that he wants to talk about the questions. He does not want to be the kind of person who leaves the elephant in the room unspoken about. It's one of my favorite idioms because I think to myself, when and where was there an elephant in the room, but no one would mention it. That's probably not how it came about, but I like to think that. Paul doesn't want to leave the elephant in the room. He says, let's talk about it. Let's not just uh, be careful to, to think these things, but then keep them quiet. But let's just talk about it. Let's just say, how is this fair? So I'm going to read verse 14 through verse 18 of Romans chapter 9, and then we'll pray and think about it together. Verse 14 says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. We're going to pause there, and I'd love to pray for us. God, we thank you for Scripture. You are other, beyond, perfect, and complete in ways that we cannot imagine. We don't deserve your attention, your love, your care, but you have loved us. And part of the way that you loved us is you spoke. Holy Spirit, you moved men along to record truths of Scripture for us. And I pray that as we read these verses and think about them, God, that you would reveal yourself to us more fully. Give us eyes to see and dig ears for us. I pray that you would be near to us so the moments that we find difficult, the tensions that we feel, that we would be filled with hope and faith. God, we confess that we've brought cynicism and distractions and hurts here this morning, so we need, we need your spirit to confront. We ask that you do that patiently. God, for our hurts, our difficulties, we pray for comfort, and that as we study together, we'd be honoring to you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give a couple of guiding principles as we trek through these chapters, and then there's going to be a series of two. There's going to be two stories, two principles, and then two fruits. So that's what I'm after this morning. Two stories, two principles, and two fruits. Before we get to those, I want to give a couple of guiding principles. You may say to yourself, Romans 9 is hard. It's really difficult. I don't know what to make of it. And with that sentiment, I would agree and so in difficult things, especially areas that we're not sure how to navigate, it's helpful to have principles, places that you can lock into. I think about times when I've attempted to rock climb or repel. And one of the times that I've gone, that was a number of years ago, I was r- reminded that I did not know what I was doing because the people around me seemed to scurry up these walls with ease. I don't know if you know this, but Brent Shepard, who's our pastoral assistant and helps with our youth ministry, he's he, he was a rock climbing, I don't, they, I don't know what they call a person who helps, a guru or something, or a, like a, a mountain goat is basically what he is. He, he worked at a, a rock climbing gym for a while, and he brought my kids a couple of weeks ago to go check it out, and that was super fun. And one of the things in talking with him and then hearing my kids talk about it is I was recalling back recalling back the instructions that I got the times that I tried to rock climb, and that is that essentially in the middle of the climb, I learned very, very quickly that I was weak, and I was trembling, and I felt tension points that were going to give way. In other words, I wanted to yell at the people around me, my fingers are about to break in half, is that normal? Or my arms are jello and I'm going to fall down, is that the normal? Is that what's supposed to happen right now? And what was interesting is that the feedback that I got was that I would be feeling tension, I am climbing a wall after all, but that if the tension is too much or too strong in the wrong points, that I probably needed to adjust. In fact, the main thing that they said to me is, uh, if you're constantly hanging only by your fingers and your arms, I think you're not using your legs enough. You should be feeling a lot more tension in your legs. You should get to the point where you're standing on your legs and just maybe holding yourself against the wall with your arms, rather than hanging on for dear life and being dragged up the wall by your arms. You see, here's what the guru, the mountain goat, whoever the person is that's helping, couldn't tell me. They would not tell me, oh, here's the thing. If you do this right, you're going to rid yourself of all tension. There will be easy. You won't even have to use your muscles. You're just going to fly up the wall with all ease and no tension. No, that's not what they said, but they did say there are certain places of tension that you should be feeling and other ones less. And the reason that I remember this information when I'm looking through Romans chapter 9 is that these questions that Paul asks in Romans 9, I believe, are his instructions to say, here's where the tension points should be. Of all the questions that you have, make sure that the tension points are here. You're not going to avoid it. You see, we have to pre-commit to mystery. If we're diving into all that God has done behind salvation, we're going to have to pre-commit to mystery, but we don't get to pick and choose, and we shouldn't pick and choose. Where the questions lie, we should follow the Guru. And so Paul is saying to us these are the questions that you're going to have, and in some ways you might always have, but there are some answers to these things. You're feeling it, he says, a lot in your fairness factor. You're feeling it a lot in your arms. You're about to give way. You're about to give up. You're about to drop off. You're done reading. The Devo's over quiet time has ended. But he says, hold on, hang on. I can't rid you of the tension, but I want to put it in the right spot. So, that's one principle. There will be tension. I cannot get through Romans 9, and no matter where you land. It doesn't matter how you identify what your particular theology is. There's going to be tension because we are plumbing the depths of God's work before eternity began. So, there will be tensions, but we want them in the right spots. So, we're going to ask the right questions. Second, as a guiding principle going through Romans chapter 9, I know that one of the temptations is to think through how it is and to have a heart for the people that are lost. That's how Romans 9 begins. But I want to say explicitly that the point of and the place that it's going here in mercy is to establish how it is that anyone is ever saved. I think that what Paul would say is we've already established how people are lost. You can go back to Romans 1, 2, and 3, and that is to say that all of humanity, in fact, all of creation, creation itself is subject to to futility. Everyone is lost. Unbelief and sin, both by nature and commission, means that the wages of sin is death. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That has been declared already. That judgment is behind us in the study of the book of Romans. So this is not... God swooping into an otherwise neutral group of folks and trying to assign places and some people getting to be lifted up and other people being pressed down. No, everyone is under the curse of sin at this point. And the reason this is important as a guidepost in reading through Romans 9 is because you won't understand the word mercy until you've wrestled with this fact. This is not determining how it is that anyone is lost. That's already been decided. Sin has separated us from God. We are in need of saving. Justice at this point would be for all of us to be separated from God forever. The thing that Paul is wondering about, the thing that causes his attention and his heart to to soar is to say, how is it that anyone receives God's mercy? Finally, I want to assure you that it is not our desire nor our hope to be the kind of people who constantly insist that all of life needs to be reflected back to Romans 9. We are studying these things because these words are in the Bible and they're here in a chapter in the middle of a book that we're studying. So a guiding principle might be something like we must define and submit to Scripture as it comes, not as we want it to come or wish it would come, and I mean that on both sides. If you hate these conversations or if you think that we're weird or you cannot believe that we would use a word like reformed or something like that, then I would encourage you to say, well, just make sure that you don't avoid this altogether because it turns out the words are in the Bible. And if you're the kind of person who gets so excited about these things, so logical about them, that you want to fight every single person you can, and no matter what theological topic comes up, you find a way to quote this chapter, then I would say, maybe you also have it out of whack. Have you ever met someone like that? Are you like that? Are you that person? So let's not do that, but let's admit that where scripture has spoken, our good is in view. That being said, I told you that there's two stories, two principles, and then two fruits. The first story, the first response it seems that Paul wants to give to the charge of injustice is the story of Moses. Now that's an interesting way to transition he asks the hard question, is there injustice on God's part? He says, no. And then the next few words are, for he says to Moses, okay, so far I'm not following, but I'm willing to listen. What does the story of Moses tell us about this problem of if God's showing mercy to some by his free mercy, what does this have to do with the story and how does it answer the question? Well, it turns out that Paul quotes from Exodus chapter 33 and reminds the reader of a moment when Moses is seeing God in a way that he has rarely ever been seen in human history. He says to Moses, this is recorded in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, and he's quoting from Exodus 33. And before I read Exodus 33:19, 19, just to set the stage for you, do you remember this moment? Moses is the leader of God's people. He's saying that they're going to be going to the promised land, and he's having, to, he's having to essentially stand in front of this mass of people, not knowing where they're going, not knowing if they're going to be provided for. And Moses says, I need them to know, and I need to know that you're with us. I want to know who you are. And someone once said that it was in that moment that Moses had the greatest ask, the most audacious, bold request in the history of negotiating, he dared to say to God, show me your glory. You, God, show me, puny human, your glory. And that request, miraculously, is taken patiently and lovingly by God, and he says, okay, with a few caveats. First, I'm going to hide you in a rock, because otherwise you die instantly from this explosion of my glory. Secondarily, you can't really see the totality of it. I'll just let you see the passing the passing train of my glory. And in the midst of this, when Moses says, "Okay, show me who you are. Who am I?" What God says is this phrase. When Moses says, "God, tell me what it means to be you. What is I am? Who is I am?" God says, okay, first and foremost, to understand what it is to be God, you need to know this. And then he quotes this in Exodus 33, verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, that's interesting When Moses asks the most audacious, bold request in the history of negotiating, and then God deigns to respond and say, okay, part and parcel to what it means to be God is His freedom to be gracious to whomever He wants to be gracious to and His freedom to show mercy wherever He wants to show mercy. What that means is the decisive factor for God's mercy is God Himself and nothing else. Now for us, we might say to ourselves, well, this is confusing and that seems like what if or how could God, because it might be understandable if there were a different standard. You see, much of humanity doesn't work this way. When we say who's going to be the recipient of something, we say, well, what's the criteria? How did they decide who earned it? So we might say mercy based on meritocracy might be a better bet. Who was Meriting it more. And God says, No, 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 you don't get it. That's not the point. No one merits it. Everyone is lost. You might say, Okay, well then, how about just based on pure genetics? Who's the strongest? Who would God be the most impressed with? Whose six pack is most inspiring for mercy? Because the strongest maybe should get it. And God says, No, 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 you don't get it. It's not based on pure genetics or family background, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy and be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Maybe pure brilliance, you say. I would understand that. You know, they give out scholarships and only the smart kids get it anyway, but everyone understands, okay, fine, I just didn't score. Why didn't I get into Stanford, you might say. Well, because you got a 900 on the SAT, you know, or whatever it is. Like, then everyone says, I get it. Smart people should get the stuff. Maybe based on brilliance is the criteria for mercy. And again and again and again, what is being insisted in Scripture is God saying, no, I am not cajoled by, convinced by, or moved by any of those things. Mercy is my prerogative, and I will give grace based on my good pleasure. That is what it means to be God. That's what he told Moses. That's why Paul remembers back. And he says, okay, here's the thing. You can't ask about fairness or justice because God has always said, I'm going to be merciful based on my free and good pleasure. So that's the first story. I'm not saying you have to put all the, all the pieces together quite yet, but if you want to ask and answer the question, is that fair, the first thing Paul says is, think about the story of Moses. Secondarily, the second story is the story of Pharaoh. Now, Moses and Pharaoh were sort of protagonist-antagonist, sort of Batman-Joker of this period of Israel's life. And you know that they interact a good bit in order to free God's people from Egypt. He brings up Pharaoh right after he says as a transition point in verse 16 of Romans 9, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then it seemed to make sense to Paul to follow with the story of Pharaoh, quoting this idea, for this very purpose I have raised you up admitting that God can raise up pharaohs. He places people in positions of authority and he takes them down. And that when God does this, he has a purpose behind it that will be accomplished. And so, it would do us some good to remember the story of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, as you, re- as you recall, was quite stubborn. Pharaoh is most noted for having a hardened heart. However, If you read the account carefully, starting in about Exodus chapter 7 up through 15 or so, you begin to realize that it's not as simple as saying, oh, well, the reason that Pharaoh was the enemy of God and God's people is that he had a hardened heart, because you might have to go deeper and say, wait, is Paul saying that there's a multitude of reasons why his heart was hardened? And what we find is is that this becomes a question much like the question, who killed Jesus? Jesus. Oh well, it was our sin we did. It was our it was he was smitten by our iniquities, like we were the ones, right? But then you'd say, well, no, 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 actually it was the Roman guards. No, I guess it was the Jewish complaint, and they did that. And then you find you read the Bible and you say, Oh, actually, he was delivered up according to the foreknowledge and plan of God. So the answer is not so simple. And I believe the answer in the same way is not so simple with Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 8, verse 15. Here's one example where it does seem straightforward. Pharaoh finally receives some relief from the plagues that are coming and ravaging their nation. And right at the time when he should have softened his heart and repented, it says in verse 15 of chapter 8, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Well, that's cut and dry. Why was Pharaoh not the recipient of God's mercy? Well, he hardened his heart. He did it. He's responsible. He's the one. Why are we still talking? Well, because it's not so simple. Later on in Exodus chapter 11, verse 10, same scenario. Plague comes, respite comes. You'd think that Pharaoh had an opportunity to repent. He doesn't, but here's what it says in verse 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. And so, from the testimony, the bare testimony of Scripture, the answer to the question, who hardened Pharaoh's heart, is both he did and the Lord did. I believe that we're not doing justice to either if we don't say both. So, the story of Moses is about what it means to be God. The story of Pharaoh seems to be what it means to be God and to work in connection with human agency. And what I would say here is the only way to establish this as a reality is to admit that God will be working in a realm, a space and time that is beyond us, and that he will break the rules of accountability altogether. In our world, when something happens, we usually know that there are reasons for it, and someone is to blame or to thank. So if you have a group project at school, you will do all of it, and no one else... No, I'm just kidding, but kind of... But if you have a project at work or school or whatever, like you might say to yourself, I'm going to take 25% of this. There's four of us. I'm taking 25. And what you mean by that is I will be responsible and no one else will be. This is mine. And because it's yours, that only leaves 75% for everyone else to do. That just makes sense. That's how humanity works. And yet somehow the scripture shows us that because God is God, if anyone is to be saved, he is 100% responsible. And so you might say, oh, okay, well, if he's 100% responsible, humans are 0%. And you know what the answer to the Bible is? No, humans are 100% responsible for being lost. And the idea here is that God breaks the rules of causation and accountability. There is a shared thing going on of agency here. God, the definitive factor if anyone is ever saved, and human beings, the definitive factor in those who, in being lost. And I would even say... If anyone is to be saved, they must actually repent. They have to confess with faith. They must trust Jesus. They must do those things or they will not become Christians. They are responsible to believe. Do you see how this breaks brains? It's one of those conundrums that's very even hard, it's hard to even illustrate. It's like the Trinity. You ever heard a really neat and good uh, illustration of the Trinity? It was broken. So somebody says to you one time, well, you know, the Trinity its like lemonade. There's lemon and there's water and there's sugar. The problem with that is that at one point they could be separated and probably still could be and that's not like the Trinity at all. So it turns out in your nice little illustration you may have blasphemed and been a heretic and you didn't even know it. It's just a hard concept. How do I illustrate the Trinity? I feel the same way here. How do I illustrate God behind the scenes of salvation and us still fully moral agents in the moments of salvation i once saw a video of a a doctor with very good bedside manner there was a small child who who was nervous about being at the doctor maybe and you can tell he just knows how to how to build rapport with children before an exam one of the things that he had was this little magic thumb you put it on the end of the thumb and then i think he had a little button and anytime you press the button the thumb would a light would light up so it looked like it looked like his thumb was lighting up like an internal light was going on And he showed the kid this, and then he began to convince the child that the child was the one that was turning the light on. He said, here, tap my thumb. The kid came over really quick, and he taps it, and as soon as he taps it, he presses the button, the light comes on, and the kid looks around the room, like, I I spent my whole life, you didn't tell me I was magic? You You didn't tell me I could do this kind of stuff? The kid's convinced, I'm in this. And then he begins to get more creative. I don't remember exactly that, I'll just give you some examples. He might tell the kid, for me, it was like Street Fighter, he's just like... Do the Hyruken thing, you know what I mean? Like he just, he does this thing and then the kid stands back and he just throws his arms like this and the guy lights up his thumb. kid's like, this is unbelievable. Look what I can do. Okay, now just be like a Jedi and just put your hand out like this and then he keeps doing it. The point being, we think this is so cute and it's wonderful because the kid thinks he's doing something he's not The doctor's really doing everything. He's the the omnipotent, all-wise, all-knowing puppet string master behind. The problem even with this illustration is that it doesn't work and it's broken and it's heretical. But other than that, it's a great illustration. Because here's the point. When God says that we've sinned and we're lost and we're responsible, He means it And when someone believes in the Lord Jesus and when they confess their sins and they repent, it is much different than a little kid fake hierookying in whatever it is toward a thumb that God turns on. God is not playing with us. We have His image. We're moral beings. We have agency that matters. It's just that, behind the scenes of salvation, if anyone is to receive mercy, God is 100% responsible. He is decisive and unmoved in a particular kind of way that must be reckoned with. Pharaoh did in fact harden his heart, and the Lord did in fact harden Pharaoh's heart because God was working behind the scenes for a purpose that no one involved could ever imagine or no. He was in a realm beyond the realm that they were living in. That is, as far as I can tell, the best thing that's being communicated here. These are a few short verses, and in order to answer this question, this is what Paul gives us, these two stories. Now, I think there are two principles that come from these stories. Let's just rehearse them. I said there'd be two stories and then two principles. I think there's two principles that are being established here that must be addressed. The first one is essentially this, that salvation is only ever by mercy. If we were talking about something that could be earned or something that would move the hand of God in some particular way, then you could bring up words like justice or fairness. But as is, the thing that's being rejected here is that the question is coming from the wrong place. Paul says, What shall we say? Is there injustice? And he goes back and he says, I want to remind you, this is not a, justice, injust, in, a just, unjust question. This is a mercy question. And the established principle is essentially this that if God were to give justice to all, then all would be lost. Everyone lost deserving of sin, the wages of sin is death. That's been established. Romans 1, 2, and 3, you can go back. That's been established. That's not the question here. The principle seems to be this. I know the instinct is to ask a just, unjust question, but you don't get mercy if that's the case. In other words, mercy means that out of what everyone deserves and out of the path that we have chosen willfully, by nature, and by commission, God has seen fit to grasp a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, and through Jesus Christ to bind them to himself. And as he does this, we have no ability, no right to say to him, this is unjust, you should give everyone what they deserve or something. Because if you could point to a single person in the universe that deserved heaven and God somehow said, no, I reject, then you would have a case but you don't have a case like that. There is no one deserving of heaven, deserving of mercy. If you were deserving of mercy, it wouldn't be mercy. Do you see the arguments here? Do you see the logic? We must insist again and again and again that salvation is mercy, not just deserts. It's mercy. And that is a humbling thing to reckon with. Second, this principle, I believe that Romans 9 establishes a principle. In other places, I think the whole book of Job establishes this principle too. It's not the only place, but Romans 9 is definitely heavy on what I would call the, the gaudiness of God. And I don't mean gaudy, like ostentatious, or but but the godness of God. And I believe that sometimes as human beings, we read through these things and we say, wow, God is free in and of himself. He is his own source. He is the standard of all righteousness and goodness, and He can bestow mercy on whomever He wishes. And what that does is that it humbles us and it forces us to reckon with the godness of God. In some sense, the reality is yes, He decides. And we have not humbled ourselves properly before God if we do not allow Him the most basic idea of what it means to be God, that is, is that He is not constrained. If there were any outside factors constraining God, then in that moment or in that particular world, He would have ceased to have been God. This is the great, because I said so, principle of the universe. Sometimes to honor parents, you need to stop pestering them for perfect logical reasons And it's totally okay. Now, not to be abused and not to be a jerk about it, but it can be totally okay because parents have to say sometimes, because I said so, because someone has to decide, because I'm in this role, because this is what it means to be me. I'm a parent and I have to figure it out. And so I'm choosing, I'm deciding, I'm just saying, okay. And you hope that you're wise. In this case, the most basic thing that it means to submit and to be in relationship with this God is to understand that he has the ultimate right to say, because I said so because I said so. And more than that, we can trust that there is no other being in the universe more qualified to say, because I said so. He is a source of all power. He can accomplish what he desires. He is a source of all wisdom. He knows more than anyone else could know. He's the source of all goodness. He's more benevolent than you could ever imagine being benevolent. He's more loving than you could ever imagine anyone being loving. And at the bare root of what it means to be God, His godness consists in His absolute freedom to bestow mercy. That is what Paul is having us reckon with. There were two stories. He brings up Moses. You want to know what I am means? My freedom. He brings up Pharaoh. This idea that God is working in a realm that we can't see, and He is responsible for the things that happen in the world. doesn't mean that we're not responsible, but He is responsible in a different and a beyond way. And then these two principles, salvation is by mercy, and we have to know what that word means. Mercy. And if we see it as mercy, it helps to undercut some of the tensions we have toward fairness. And then secondarily, this principle that the godness of God means that He must be trusted with the right to be free what's my hope what's my prayer i don't know that there's much more that i should say here right now about romans nine fourteen to 18 i hope you grab coffee or a lunch or a late night hangout i mean and there's a million things to talk about in here i don't know there's much else for me to say at least in this moment in this context And so instead I think about fruits. What do I want to be bubbling in us as a result of this? What could be the best hope? And I believe these are the two fruits that we can pray for. First, humility. Humility. Just the idea that we could be reminded, and perhaps in Romans 9 more than anywhere else, we could be reminded, God is God and I am not. And is that okay? What does that mean? Have you reckoned with God in this way? Have you understood your inability? When you cried out to Jesus, were you crying out for a rescue or new life from the dead? Or were you crying out for some slight cooperation from an also awesome being? I would pray for and I would love a fruit of humility from thinking on these things. To remember that our sin has truly separated us, that we're the needy ones. A second fruit, so in addition to humility, would be faith. You know what it takes when you come down to the end of this? Essentially what it takes away is all human control. That's wildly uncomfortable. If you would just give me a list of things that I can control look, I I would feel okay about it in one way or the other. Tell me what's necessary for the scholarship and I'll either work really hard and earn it or I'll work really hard but I'll be fine because I'll know that I didn't earn it. And what God is telling us here is that there is a final factor in all of life, more than all of life, in all of eternal life that is beyond our control and I hope that it leads us to trust. Trust. One of my favorite rhetorical questions from all of Scripture is, will the judge of all the earth not rule justly? I think that's a question after reading a passage like this. Can we sit with mystery? There's going to be mysteries. We won't solve them all. Next week, we're going to see another question come up, and there's a point where Paul even says, what if, as though he's daring not even to go there, are we comfortable to sit with mystery? Can we give God Control. Can we rejoice that He's free? And in knowing who He is, can we say something like this? You know what? This stuff is a little uncomfortable, but when I think of how loving God is and when I think about how wise He is, when I think about how good He is, when I know how merciful He is, when I think of His commitment to justice then I believe there is a day coming in the future where we'll look back over the course of history and we'll say, of course, of course you were free. And I'm so glad that you were because anyone else would have messed this up. Can you trust God that ultimately the end of all things will be handled with brilliant, glorious wisdom? Of course, the encouragement is yes for every Loved one, who you pray fervently for them to know Christ. For every question of sovereignty or of suffering that you don't have a specific answer to, may God's freedom and the Godness of God stir us to faith to say we're going to bring all these things to Him. I said these are fruits. They're not works. I don't mean leave here and go perform humility. I don't mean leave here and go muster up more faith, you doubting person. Here's what I'm praying for, that the fruit of the Spirit would be active in us. Would God give us these gifts? And in order for that to be the case, I think we have to pray. I don't mean have to in a mean way. I think I got nothing else to offer but to pray. So, let's pray together. God, I pray that we would not take lightly that we call you Father. Help us to see in these moments your otherness. We confess that so many times we overestimate our ability, our cooperation with you. We try to seize control. Forgive us. God, forgive us for believing that we are definitive that we are final. God, forgive us for the times when not only do we bring ourselves high, but we bring you low. We thought that you were like us. We doubted your goodness. God, humble us. And I pray that after reading a passage like this, Spirit of God, would you stir faith in us? Give us confidence, boldness, courage to take all of these tensions, all the mystery, and to offer them back to you. There is no better place to entrust ourselves. Help us to see you as trustworthy. And we pray that you would stir where there is doubt. God, we believe, help our unbelief. And where there's unbelief, help it. Pray that you stir these things in us now in Jesus name. Amen.